This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. grew up in the northwest of England, just 14 miles from the Victorian seaside resort of Blackpool. And in Blackpool, there is a famous ballroom which sits beneath Blackpool's famous tower, like the Eiffel Tower, only about 700 feet shorter. And above the stage, looking down on the whirling dancers in the tower ballroom, is a lovely phrase. Bid me discourse and I shall enchant thine ear. And that phrase seems apt for this week's show, the through line of which is definitely music upon multiple Columbia stages. We've got a musical comedy with its roots in a true story, a festival of music that is excitingly far from the mainstream and an eclectic 115-year-old series of concerts. First stop, the Rheinsberger stage. There cannot be many musical comedies that also have been ACLU cases, but there is one. Back in 2010, a senior at a high school in Fulton, Mississippi, asked her school principal if she could bring her girlfriend to the school prom. The answer was no, for the spurious reason that it might encourage other students to pretend to be same-sex couples so they could buy the cheaper couples tickets. The student, Constance McMillan, recognised that it was a blatant case of homophobia and contacted the ACLU, who filed a free speech lawsuit. The school cancelled the prom. But a second secret prom was organised by parents to which Macmillan was not invited. The story garnered international coverage and received a lot of support from celebrities such as Dan Savage, Ellen DeGeneres, former NSYNC member Lance Bass and a man called Jack Viertel, an American theatre producer and writer. And before you know it, Jack Vittel had brought on board composer Matthew Sklar, who also wrote Elf the Musical and The Wedding Singer, lyricist Chad Beglin, writer Bob Martin, who wrote The Drowsy Chaperone, and director and choreographer Casey Nicolor, whose credits include Mean Girls, Aladdin, and The Book of Mormon. It was a powerhouse team. In August 2016, the musical comedy The Prom opened in Atlanta and then in November 2018 moved to Broadway. Critics called it a joyful hoot with kinetic dancing and belty anthems and as big silly fun with a sly wink and a warm heart. But it only ran on Broadway for 310 performances, did not recoup its capitalization of $13.5 million, and although it received 27 award nominations, it only won one, the Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Musical. But then it became a Netflix film starring Meryl Streep, Nicole Kidman, James Corden, Keegan-Michael Key, Kerry Washington and Ariana DeBose. And in June of last year, went out on national tour, including a stint at the Fox Theatre in St. Louis earlier this year, where I saw it. And this weekend, the University of Missouri's own production of The Prom opens at the Rheinsberger Theatre, directed by my guest and frequent Speaking of the Arts visitor, Dr. Joy Powell. 
Hal Joy, welcome back. I always love chatting theatre with you. You must be in seventh heaven with this musical under your magical <laughs> directorial touch. Well, what an intro. I love, <laughs> love that intro. I always love chatting with you as well. And I am having a blast with this show. I can't think of a better musical for I know. you. It's because um, it's not the most well-known title, right? And I've had some folks ask me what it's about or what I love about it. And one of the things I love is it makes fun of theater people. <laughs> and we, myself included, just sometimes take ourselves entirely too seriously and so this really has some wonderful, loving jabs and some satire for sure about <laughs> us theater people and that we think every show can change the world, although I still do think that, um, and <laughs> that because we enter the room, things to change, right? And, and this really, really sort of takes a look at that. And part of the premise is this group of Broadway, quote unquote, stars who's careers have fallen on rocky times, decide they're going to become artist activists. But they want a, a cause that's small enough that they can conquer, you know, via car, right? I mean, there's all these stipulations that they put on it. Um, they don't want to do world hunger because that's way too big for them, right? Poverty too big. Exactly. So <laughs> they go to Indiana. Um, and that's where the story that you spoke of, the originating story, that's one of the differences is that in the musical, it's set in Edgewater, Indiana, a small town there. So these Broadway folks go and they're going to save the day. And of course, what ends up happening is they get saved, right? They actually invest in real relationships and really actually give of themselves and understand what generosity is about. And so in turn, of course, they they become actually people with with real hearts or in some cases, their hearts that are actually real that have been covered over over time <laughs> are, are revealed. And so... It is hilarious. It has a great message. It is funny and irreverent and really tells a story about, for me, you know, my concept from the whole time has been access to love for lots of people. Romantic love, you know, loving yourself as you are, that friendship love that gets us through so many challenging moments and the ups and downs of that. And, and this story, I think, does that in a really unique way. So why do you think from your esteemed position as a PhD in theater <laughs> that this feel good injustice come up and joyful hoot of a musical comedy with a powerhouse team behind it yes was not a massive success on Broadway I don't know um because that cast was fantastic yes. right um I, you know I don't know I did not get to see it on Broadway I too saw the tour that you saw at the Fox but I had listened to the score and had friends see it before I did when it was on Broadway. And they were like, oh, my gosh, you've got to see this. I think sometimes people just I don't know if it's because it's a comedy. You know, it's not Les Mis. Right. And so sometimes if things are funny, I think people sort of um, maybe don't take them, quote unquote, as seriously as they would if something was a drama. I'm not quite sure. I mean, the songs are very catchy. We're all walking around the building humming a different tune from the show, <laughs> those earworms. They're songs that stick with you. I cannot wait for you to come and see it because I know your laugh. And there's a couple of songs that when they hit, I'm I'm already anticipating. I was like, Diana Moxon is going to crack up when she hears this. I think maybe it's because they do make fun of theater people. And theater people, of course, make 
all those decisions, right, about those award shows. Maybe they got they were offended, but I don't have any idea. You know, what is interesting, I think, is that Jack Fittell was the senior vice president of the third largest theatre group in New York, Jujamson mm-hmm. Theatre. So he really has a huge background in theatre. And Absolutely. he even wrote a book titled The Secret Life of the American Musical, How Broadway Shows yes. Are Built, in which he wrote, musicals in general may be sentimental, mythologised, full of false optimism and showbiz glitz, but every now and then, one features a moment that manages to be profound. And that's what we wait for. And surely that is exactly what the prom offered. Absolutely. So for you... What makes a winning musical? Hmm. From the from the perspective of creating it or being an audience member? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Is there a difference? Oh, sure. Maybe for the audience. Well, for me, a successful show as an audience member, when I go in and just try to be a civilian, right? Just try <laughs> to be a person watching. Yeah, it's hard, right? Because you, you turn off your director brain and your actor brain and your, you know. Um, am I engaged in the story? Are there the elements coming together? Is the production value something that, and it can be, you know, a chair and a table, right? But is it done with intention? Does the story make me want to lean in in the way that it's told? Are all of the elements complementing one another, all of the visual things and the the things that we hear and see? And can I cuss on here? Is that allowed? No. Okay. Do I give a care about the characters? Right. Right? Do I give a care about them? Do I want them to get the thing that they want? Mm. That for me is when I know a show has been successful for me as an audience member. And so when I'm making theater, obviously those are the stories that I want to tell. And when I saw this for the first time live, I thought – man, I really want Emma to get a prom. You know, that's mm. the main character. Man, I really want Alyssa, her girlfriend, and and Mrs. Green, Alyssa's mom. Man, I really want Mrs. Green to get that her daughter is a lesbian and that she should love her anyway. Man, I really, really want Barry and Dee Dee, the two main Broadway folks, to get their heads out of their butts and realize the world is bigger than just them and how they can contribute to it, right? So for me as an audience member seeing the prom and then now I'm I'm directing it, this story just felt really compelling to me. Now, it's not my story necessarily. I mean, as a theater person, it is. But, you know, I'm not a lesbian, so I wasn't, like, trying to take someone else to the prom, that same-sex couple of any kind. But I have so many people that I love and care about who find themselves in those situations. And, you know, it was really interesting. Our dramaturg, Dr. Les Gray, shared about their own prom and then in a session with the cast, and the cast then shared about situations they had been in that are very similar to these characters. And I could not believe how much really discrimination there is against the LGBTQ plus community in connection to a prom. (laughs) I mean, yeah, like trying to buy the, the couple ticket and getting grilled by the person behind that table selling that ticket about who they were bringing to the prom. And then alternate proms happening in the town at the same time, you know, wherever the students, some of the students were from, that were accepting of whomever the couples were, right? And the students opting to go to that alt prom instead of the school's prom. 
And so, you know, as a middle-aged white lady that's straight, like, I didn't know those things, right? I mean, the last time I went to prom, it was 1994. (laughs) You know, like, it wasn't. So it was really important, I think, for us to have that conversation as a cast and and a team and understand that this story is not far away, right? It's not some sort of cautionary tale that's very rare, that these major microaggressions are happening still. And so when we do a show like this, not only do our students feel seen and heard and valued and affirmed, but I'm telling you what, there's going to be people that come and see this show that never went to prom or didn't get to go to prom with the person that they wanted to, and they are also going to have that visibility. That's our goal. And they are also going to be valued and seen by this telling of this story. It feels like this is a musical that really checks all the boxes for a university production. It's about young people. It's about injustice. It's about civil liberties, LGBTQ rights, plus the singing and dancing, and it's funny and heartwarming. So for you as the director, there is so much innate understanding within Mm -hmm. the cast that it must make it a relatively easy ride for you. What did you want to add to the play as a director? You could just have said, oh, here you go. Here's the stage, everybody. Just have at it. (laughs) What are you bringing to it? Well, you know, my goal as a director is always that the process would be what we want the actual show to convey. So as we're going through the show, the process is the point, Mm. right? The process is, is the goal. And of course, we're also teaching students, right? And so half the cast are brand new students. So we've got 24 in the cast. Half of them have never been on the Mizzou stage. Most of them have never been to college before. So the particular goal of this of this particular cast of the show was that we were teaching them how to be theater makers, right, and theater artists as they were learning these roles and breathing life into these characters and teaching them, you know, what what does it mean to be a professional, right, in this context as they're in this college setting, which is kind of the in-between between, you know, being in high school and then being out in the world. We're sort of this stop that they're adults, quote unquote, but they're also very much still learning who they are and then how to do this art form where then they have to become someone else. <laughs> so there's a lot of big goals when it comes to that. But we have a lot of students that are non-binary. We have a lot of students that are in the LGBTQ plus community, backstage, in the, you know, the front of house crew and, and the stage crew and in the you know, booth and on the team and in the cast. And so to be able to celebrate that level of diversity in every sort of way, that was definitely the goal with this. And you know, we're the regional premiere yeah. of this musical. It's huge. And, you know, a lot of the leads are black and brown folks. And so, which is not necessarily what the original was, but because of the level of diversity that we cultivate and and that makes up our incredible theater community, you know, you're going to see these roles played in such a wonderful way that really is informed by the actual actors, right, that are playing them. So I, I'm curious on that front of it being the regional premiere, how you managed to get the rights so quickly. <laughs> I mean, it only finished its national tour last month and they don't yeah. give out rights during national tours. And so now it, right. here it is on the Rheinsberger <laughs> stage by November the 4th. How did you swim that? Well, I have been applying for the rights for three years. And of course, COVID changed the timeline. 
but we we applied summer, I would say, and we got them because the national tour ended last month. And so we just I just feel like it was divine timing and we were able to get it. And we had tried to do a different show that we had the rights for and they pulled it because of a tour. So I feel like we were due <laughs> to get them. And so, you know, I've had friends across Missouri be like, how did you do this? You know, I've gotten that question. I was like, <laughs> just persistence. You just you have to keep trying right till you get it. So, yeah, we're thrilled and very, very grateful. And I just want to give a shout out to this team. I mean, um, you know, Dr. Mimi Hedges is our new chair and our scenic designer and our production director of production. Kayla Johnson, who's been on stage with us and our associate choreographer is actually the choreographer of this show. So when you see this choreography, you're going to flip out. Also, we have Columbia Theater Royalty. Ed Hansen is our music director. I saw that. And he, we've never worked together before, and he is just an absolute gem. But um, this team has just done incredible work. So uh, very excited. Well, famously, the first known onstage same-sex wedding took place at the Longacre Theatre on August the 3rd, 2019, after one of the show's performances. So I wonder if any couples have yet approached you about exchanging their wedding vows on the prom-bedecked Rheinsberger stage. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, not yet, but (laughs) maybe now. That is so cool. Gosh, you just... You're just a fount of knowledge, Diana, a fount of knowledge. That is so cool. I did not know that. That's amazing. Let's see if we can make it happen here in Columbia, Missouri, too. Okay, I would love that. (laughs) The musical comedy The Prom opens at the Rheinsberger Theatre tomorrow evening and runs for two weekends, Friday to Sunday this first weekend and Thursday to Sunday next weekend, and the Sunday performances are both matinees. For more information, go to theatre.missouri.edu and Joy Powell. Last time I saw it, I was very distracted by the interior design of the Fox Theatre, and I shall be absolutely (laughs) fully engaged this time around with your stage presentation. So thank you so much for making time to chat. Thank you. Most of us have stubbornly conditioned ears, something noted by the avant-garde French composer Edgar Varès, who went on to add, anything new in music has always been called noise, but what is music but organised noises? For more than a century, experimental music has delighted and perplexed ears. As one commentator on the genre said, to be experimental is to begin to speak a language that not everyone speaks yet. To its proponents, it is sound that pushes the boundaries of music and finds new shapes and structures within the soundscape. But for the most part, experimental music gets categorised as weird music because it defies what our ears and our brain have come to expect. And it is this world of contemporary experimental music which returns to Columbia this weekend for the 7th annual Columbia Experimental Music Festival, organised by local non-profit organisation Dismal Niche, or Dismal Niche as I pronounce it. Dismal Niche was formed back in 2013 by my guest Matt Crook together with Ben Klapek. A friendship which delightfully has its origin stories at a KOPN mixtape exchange back in 2011. 
In its early days, Dismal Niche was a DIY, artist-operated record label and community arts network, the goal of which was to archive the independent, esoteric and experimental accents of the local and regional art scene. But for the past seven years, most of the work of the organisation has centred on bringing to Colombia artists who stand on the world stage of innovative and non-conventional music and to give mid-Missouri audiences a chance to listen to, and I'm going to quote Edgar Verres again, a whole new world of unsuspected sounds. So welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Matt Crook. Hi, Diana. Thanks for having me. I love a good origin story, especially one that includes KOPN. So tell me about those mixtapes that you and Ben exchanged and whether whether you discerned each other as kindred spirits before you exchanged music. It was uh, it was a group of folks that would meet at KOPN. I don't even really remember how how I was invited or how I learned about it, probably just because I um, and I'm a, a longtime member of KOPN and you know, it's a relatively small circle of people that would be interested in trading cassettes to begin with. So, I, yeah, I don't really remember exactly what was on Ben's cassette or what I exchanged with him. But uh, us being in the same room at a small cassette exchange kind of already defined us as as kindred spirits. But once we got to talking more, um, we realized we shared a lot of similar interests in art and music and ideas about life and things like that. So it was pretty immediate. Well, thank you for being a long-time member of KOPN. I should add that in right now. <laughs> I know this is a question you've been asked many times, but why the name Dismal Niche? It has this almost reverse marketing element. It reminds me of the Groucho Marx comment of, I don't want to be in any club that would have me as a member. The name has this kind of instantly unappealing sound to anyone who isn't up for an adventure. So tell me what your thinking was behind the name. Right. Yeah, it's a little bit off-putting. Um, <laughs> well, Dismal Niche, spelled N-I-T-C-H, is a spot along the Columbia River. And if you're driving from, uh, well, I was driving from Seattle to Portland, Oregon, and I saw a sign, one of the green signs, you know, on the side of the highway that said Dismal Niche, N-I-T-C-H. And it's it's a beautiful spot where you can stop and do some bird watching along the Columbia River right outside of Astoria. And I and Ben had, had been talking about beginning a, a small record label here in Columbia based around, like you said in the introduction, more esoteric, adventurous and experimental music. And so we decided that that wasn't going to make any money and that was not, you know, going to be immediately accessible to a lot of people. And so we liked that name, Dismal Niche. It's a little bit self-deprecating and off-putting. <laughs> but we, you know, cassette tapes and this kind of music is definitely a, a, a niche or a niche market. And so we just, uh, we changed the spelling and we adopted that as our, uh, our nickname, I guess. Experimental music artist John Cage said that the term experimental music should apply to music, the outcome of which is not known. And I'm wondering how... When you're explaining the festival to people, or more specifically, the kind of music featured at the festival, how do you help them understand the mindset of the music or, or help them to overcome their intuitive antipathy to it? What do you say to them? People that are scared of experimental music? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, 
generally explain to people that that is a large umbrella term that a lot of things fit underneath and that, you know, a lot of the music is really very pleasant and experimental doesn't necessarily just mean that it's going to be incomprehensible to someone raised on classical or pop music or something like that. But it's more about the ideas that come along with the way that we program. You know, we want people to have a a very individual aesthetic experience where you don't just come and take it in and you let the, the music really take you. It's sort of ineffable and it's sort of hard to explain exactly why we curate and why we program what we do. But I think that most of it sort of has that quality where it's really, um, it's really enchanting stuff. And so I think that when I explain to people what experimental music is, it's not so much just sounds. It's, it's the ideas of disrupting the, the normal way that we experience music, whether how it sounds or whether who is presenting it or, or where it is. We try to sort of bring in ideas about socio-spatiality, you know, what spaces get used, how uh, humans have a lot of power in really collectively defining what a space is and how we can, how, how all of that is really just made up and how we can uh, challenge that and kind of redefine re- our realities through experimental music and, and through art and through sound and through communication. When you talk about space, are you thinking about the physical locations in which you are inviting artists to perform or more of a mental space of openness that you want the audiences to occupy? I think both. I think that we definitely try to um, use spaces where people don't generally see music or we try to use spaces where people don't generally see the kind of music that we're putting in that space. And so I think that through a a literal physical sense of space, we can kind of open up mental spaces for social reimaginings. I think it's important to go and listen to music that you don't think you're going to like, because it does expand your ability to be accepting of things outside of your norm. And I really value the new music festival that Mizzou does every year in bringing young composers in because it really challenges me to think and to listen differently than I would to not have those expectations which you have with, you know, more popular genres of music where you know where it's going to go and experimental music and new music like I said at the beginning, we've all got these stubbornly conditioned ears and it's really good to push those boundaries. What was the gateway music for you? Oh, wow. Um, I get asked that question a lot. I don't know. You have to go real far back to really think about what that, where the gate actually opened. But I would say that my room was just above my brothers, my older brothers growing up. And, um, he got into a lot of punk rock and hip hop music and just hearing like the, the narratives and those forms of music, the kinds of things that people were talking about being raised, you know, pretty uh, normal Midwest, middle-class white Catholic, the kinds of things that people were saying in those kinds of music, you know, questioning whether or not, you know, the the government really worked for us or talking about words like oppression, you know, like things that I hadn't really heard before. Those narratives really opened up a lot to explore for me. 
When you think about the festival and who you who you bring here, I mean, like you say, I mean, like you grew up, we are in a small Midwest town with our musical roots firmly in roots, blues, bluegrass and country. Do you feel like there are any boundaries for who you might want to bring to Columbia, who you feel are just like, OK, well, that's too weird. It's just it's not going to fly in Columbia. Do you have boundaries? Yeah, absolutely. I do. Because we don't make any money doing this, but <laughs> we also don't want to just completely go broke doing this either. Right. So, um, yeah, we do have to ride a line between just totally out avant-garde and what we think that people around here might accept and might actually come out to. So, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely artists that I particularly enjoy that I don't know if they'd be successful here. So when I look through the lineup of musicians that are coming to this year's festival, for example, it is hard to see or discern a connecting thread between all the artists. You've got post-rock Canadian anarchists and East Coast rappers and floaty music inspired by Scandinavian islands and and then amazingly, the master of continuous piano music who fascinates me. So what is the thread that you're looking for when you curate the festival? Well, like I said earlier, it's sort of ineffable. I kind of like to leave that up to interpretation. It's the, the thread connecting it, I guess, is this sort of implacable, enchanting magic that these musicians bring. I think that there are a lot of similar ideas. If you really sat down with all of these artists, what might not appear on the surface to have a whole lot of continuity in thought, I think if you really sat down with all of these people, um, a lot of things would be illuminated as far as similar ideas about music and, and ways of living and things like that. And I think you talked in a previous interview that you're looking for not just live music, but but living music, artists that in, encompass the music. Can you talk about that like living music and, and live music component that you talked about before? Sure. I think that is, maybe that's the thread here, that all of these artists are not, they'd be doing this whether or not they were making any money doing it. The music that they make is imminent to their ontological construction. You know, this is uh, art and music as a way of life. I think that pretty much everybody we bring here would agree that, you know, they couldn't live without what they do and that the sounds that you hear them make are a reflection of their identities and, and how they live their life. Tell me a little bit about Lubomir Melnik, who is the... Uh, Ukrainian-born pioneer of continuous music, who, when asked to describe what it's like to live inside his music, replied, my whole body is transformed as I play. My fingers feel like the winds of the world. It feels like you're physically transcending dimensions. And I've listened to some of his music, and it is incredibly compelling and meditative up to a point. And then I just want to yell, shut up. That's enough. <laughs> After a while, my head starts to explode. How, how did he first cross your path? Well, I hope that you don't come to the show and do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> though, if you felt so moved, maybe that would be uh, maybe that would be part of like a performance <laughs> art of it all. Um, <laughs> I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, how? Sorry, what was the question? How, how did, did he cross my path? Yeah, or, how did you find him? His music was, or it is released. From a label called Erase Tapes. Um, Erase Tapes is a pretty well-known neoclassical label. So a lot of what they put out 
I was already listening to, and I think, you know, I just found him on their roster. He has a lot of significant overlap with the post-rock genre. So, you know, if you are someone who listens to Godspeed You Black Emperor, you know, the algorithm at some point will lead you to Lubomir Melianic. I think also I listen to a lot of American minimalist music, Steve Reich and Philip Glass and things like that. And Lubomir's music takes a lot of cues from American minimalism. So I think that there were enough overlapping circles between his music and what I was already familiar with that it was only a matter of time. I mean, when you read about him, it is amazing that we get to listen to him here in Colombia. I mean, he's got two concerts on his website, this concert, and then he plays the Barbican in London, which is a hugely prestigious venue to play. And that's it. I mean, the chance, what you are giving to us is this incredible opportunity to listen to somebody that we would not hear anywhere else in the country. Are you sold out for that concert? No, we're not. That show is being held at the uh, Missouri United Methodist Church that can seat up to 900 people. So if you're on the fence and you haven't bought a ticket, you can come day of at the door. There's almost guaranteed to be a seat for you. I'm intrigued by him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is an extremely rare opportunity. And, you know, I don't live in uh, London and I don't live in New York and I don't live in Los Angeles, but I still want to be able to see this kind of music. And it it almost feels a lot more special to see it somewhere like Columbia, Missouri, where you're going to see it with a small crowd and it would almost most definitely not happen here unless we brought it here, you know. Absolutely. This is the seventh year of the festival. And I remember talking to Paul Sturts from True Faults many years ago, and he said, he, he was commenting on how many years it took before people really understood exactly what True False was and what it was trying to do. And so I want you, when you look back over the past seven years of, of your festival, what do you notice about the audiences and their understanding of what Dismal Nish is trying to do? I think early on, it was a pretty small crowd of people who just had big open minds about things or who were already involved in the what I like to call the soft, weird underbelly of Columbia. (laughs) And so it was pretty like at arm's length. And over the years, it's grown quite a bit. I think that just with like the the names of the artists that we're bringing here, people are are hearing about it from, you know, those artists channels and things like that. But uh, I think that it's still a challenge every year. I think that we get more people every year. And, you know, the ones that have been with us since year one, are pretty open and willing to uh, just take whatever it is that we're going to give them. And some people, I think, that might be new to it are still maybe a little apprehensive sometimes. But oftentimes, I, I really feel that, you know, if people can find it and if people are willing to come out, I think most people that come are, are pretty enchanted. And so I think that uh, it, it hasn't really been that much of a struggle growing this and retaining an audience. I know you can't have a favorite because they have to order your favorites, but for you, what are the, maybe the deepest parts of this year's festival? What is the most exciting that you're looking forward to? One thing that I'm really looking forward to is the opening act for Godspeed You Black Emperor. So on tour right now, um, Marisa Anderson, the American traditional finger style finger picker is opening for them. And she's been here before. Um, we've brought her through a few years ago and my band did a couple of shows with her here in Missouri. 
and she's amazing. Um, one of the most highly regarded fingerstyle guitar players in America. And then after Columbia, a band called Manas, featuring the abstract guitarist Tashi Dorji and the wild free improv percussionist drummer Tom Nguyen are playing all the shows after Columbia. And so we know all of these artists, and we decided to ask if they could all just do a free improv performance before Godspeed You Black Emperor. And so Columbia is special in that way, in that we're going to get this one-off trio performance from those artists that uh, nobody else seeing Godspeed on this tour is going to be able to see. So that feels special. And that that really feels special every year when we make things like that happen, when artists just show up to the festival and decide to play together and then go on to make records together or go on tour together or really uh, strike up a, a friendship from the, uh, the impetus of this festival. That's really one of my favorite things that happens with this. This year I'm, I'm putting on a workshop, helping put on a workshop at uh, Battle High School with a couple of visiting hip-hop artists. And so just seeing our programming make it further into the cultural weaving of Columbia through educational institutions and through bigger venues and things like that. That's really what excites me about this work and doing this festival. And that's what makes it meaningful and important to me. Well, let's go out with a little music. This is a piece of music by Jeremiah Shu and Marta Sophia Honer from their album titled Recordings from the Orland Islands. And they're going to be here this weekend. And this track is called Under the Midnight Sun. Dismal Niche got underway last night and continues with an experimental short films program at 8.30pm tonight at Ragtag. The first musical performance is Rap Ferreira and hip-hop duo H31R tomorrow night at Rose Music Hall. Saturday evening, you can hear continuous music pianist Lubomir Melnik and duo Jeremiah Chu and Marta Sophia Hona at the Missouri United Methodist Church. And on Sunday, folk guitarist Marissa Anderson plays at Daniel Boone 
Regional Library at two and then joins Manas and Godspeed You Black Emperor at the Blue Note on Sunday evening. You can see the full lineup of music and events at cargocollective.com forward slash dismal niche. Matt Crook, thank you so much for making time to chat and I hope that you unlock a few more stubbornly conditioned ears this weekend. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk. For 115 years, the University of Missouri has presented an annual program of concerts. For the majority of that century plus, the concerts were in the lane of classical music. But for the past 30 years, the range of performances scheduled each season has included Broadway shows, comedians, ballet, dance, jazz bands, vocal ensembles and holiday rock shows and has brought to Columbia a united nations of international artists who stepped onto the stage at Jesse Auditorium and for the last decade or so onto the boards of the Missouri Theatre too. And although the variety of the performances has expanded hugely since those earlier classical music-only days, one organisation that has missed only a few of those 115 years is the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, which opened the 2022-23 season last Tuesday. This year's season is a veritable cornucopia of performance genres, orchestras, children's theatre, choral, ballet, opera, jukebox tribute shows, national Broadway shows and the final tour of a group that my mum used to love back in the 1970s, Manhattan Transfer. It has, of course, been a diabolically difficult past two years for every performance venue. And although there was some incredible creativity in bringing filmed and streamed entertainment to us at home, if your bread and butter relies on international orchestras, big theatrical productions and large troops of people in close proximity to each other, then in 2020, you had to close your doors. And in 2021, you had to operate at a much reduced capacity so you could see everyone at a safe distance from each other. But now, finally, it feels like the normality of the before times is pretty much back. And one man for whom that is a huge relief is my next guest, University Concert Series Director Robert Wells, who is here along with the Concert Series Outreach and Development Coordinator Lainey Van Sant. It's been a long time, Robert and Lainey, but welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Well, thank Thank you. you. It's good to be here. So according to the Concert Series website, Robert... You excelled in music and theatre in early childhood. Were you a toddler Fred Astaire or the Yo-Yo Ma of the recorder? Oh, I don't think I could ever claim anywhere near that level of anything. But yes, I was in band. I was in musical theatre. I did drama. I played multiple instruments. It's always been a passion. But do you ever do anything these days still? I do. I still play the piano and the organ. I pretty much do it for my own pleasure, not for everyone else's. (laughs) Well, 2023 will be, I believe, your 10th year of directing the concert series. And I'm guessing there were many times in your eighth and ninth year when you wondered if you would have a job. How did the concert series financially weather the pandemic, Robert? Well, we were very fortunate that we are an auxiliary of the University of Missouri, we were able to open our buildings up to large lecture halls to help the university out. In turn, they were able to keep us afloat, I guess is probably the best term. It was uh, not ideal for anyone during those years, but here we are ready to go again. Did you have anything in 2020 or was it a complete shutdown? 
We were shut down for several months with absolutely no activity, but in August, then we started doing the lecture halls and we did class after class in both buildings, day in, day out, Monday through Friday. And that's what kept us going. So, Lainey, you came on board as the Outreach and Development Coordinator in, I think, September 2021, charged with, I'm sure, working out how to get the concert series back out into the community. What have been some of your goals in that regard? Yeah, there's been a lot. Again, it's we've been sort of all hands on deck. So I've been doing a little bit of everything around. And now that we're more fully staffed, I've been able to, to focus more on our outreach and development. We definitely wanted to reach out to our donors and sponsors who had been supporters before and see how everyone was doing with coming back to the theater. And then this year, I've been able to work with some different groups. We're having a couple of big school shows. So the Lightning Thief specifically is we're bringing in every sixth grader in Columbia to come see the Lightning Thief. Wow. And then they're actually doing a second school show with us that will be open to uh, schools outside of Columbia. So we can reach not only our very local schools, but also the more regional schools as well, and just get as many kids as possible in there to enjoy that show. Does Outreach Coordinator predominantly focus on education and schools? That's mostly been what we've done. We also did a presentation for Osher, which is retirees. I've gone to the Senior Activity Center to set up a table. I also do a lot of outreach with the university and trying to encourage students to see the concert series as part of their college experience, as a chance to see who they are and what they like and whether or not they enjoy opera. A lot of students just haven't even thought about it. So Mm. um, I've been doing spending a lot of time with that group, too. So it's a little bit of everybody. So, Robert, the pandemic might finally be in the back seat, or preferably in a locked trunk, but there are still a lot of challenges facing all venue directors. Inflation and economic pressures, gas prices, the uncertainty of global conflict, all of which alter people's willingness to spend discretionary money. What are your expectations for the season? Well, you know, we were hopeful that this year would be bright and sunny and back to normal, but as you just clearly articulated, there are a host of other problems that we had not anticipated. I think that, unfortunately, I have to say that this might be another year of survival. We've had a a number of tours that we wanted to have here that are not able to be here because of global conflict. We've had tours that have had to drop their tour because of gas prices and uh, the things that it takes to take a tour across the country. Inflation, obviously, is a factor. It seems kind of overwhelming to us right now. Uh, We're just taking one day at a time, putting the best we have out there and hoping that everyone enjoys a little bit of what we do. I seem to recall that a few years ago when you first came on board, one of the big changes that you had to make was how all of the concerts were financed, that whereas historically the university took the upfront risk of covering the cost of the concerts and then hoping to recoup the investment in ticket sales, the funding model changed. So you worked more with promoters and therefore the university had to take less of a risk. Take me behind the scenes on the economics of running a concert series, Robert. <laughs> I wish I understood it better than I do myself. <laughs> and, I, and I mean that tongue in cheek. I'm getting a pretty good handle on it. 
Yes, you're correct. It is a mixed bag of things that we contract with and present, as well as outside promoters. Funding comes from every source, or at least we need it to come from every source. There is no real presenting series in the country that lives purely by ticket sales. It is grants, individual donors, corporate sponsors, merchandise sales. There's small little pockets everywhere, and they all have to come together to make it all work. It's a lot, a lot of things to juggle financially behind the scenes, as well as, you know, doing everything else that you have to do. So, Lainey, your 2022-23 season started just last week, but you've already checked off two performances, the St. Louis Symphony and then last weekend Chicago. And next Tuesday on the 8th, you have a concert experience honouring the Queen of Soul. Tell us a little about R-A-S-P-E-C-T. Yeah, so it's a really interesting show. It's kind of halfway between a tribute concert and a more traditional musical. They don't play characters. There's like a band and singers who are presenting Aretha Franklin's music. And then they also give a lot of information about her life and the influence and impact of her music and what influenced and impacted her to make her create that soul music that we all love. So it's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to learn a lot, but also it's going to feel like a concert, just song after song after song. So it's more like a jukebox tribute show. Yeah, yeah. And so then hot on the heels of the Aretha Franklin tribute, you have two nights of a dance with local dance supremas Marek Dance and a show called Unleashed featuring three world premieres with the music for one of the works composed by David K. Israel, who has an impressive resume of writing for dance, including for the New York City Ballet. And Robert, you have five performances on the schedule featuring local organizations, the Choral Union, Marek Dance and Show Me Opera. And I wonder how important is that as part of the concert series mission? Oh, it's very important. Our mission is very broad. And part of that mission is to engage our community. And there's really no better way to engage people than to have them actually performing on stage using their talents and sharing with the community. The Choral Union is hundreds of people who come together to do a major work. And the Show Me Opera is students at the University of Missouri who are studying for a career in the opera. We have some great children's programs, too, where children are able to audition and dance with professional dancers on stage. So pulling them in and letting them be a part of it is is certainly part of our mission. I was looking through all of the performances. I mean, it- If I wanted to get the cheapest seat to see all the performances, it would cost me $790, which is a lot of money. But, of course, it is a fraction of what we would pay to see 21 events in a larger metropolitan area. But, Lainey, tell me about what programs you have in place that help less affluent members of the community enjoy some of the concert series events. We offer group sales, and that's for groups of people who are coming together, like if you want to buy 20 tickets all together to the same show, you'll get 30% off of those tickets, which is a pretty good discount. Also, if you as an individual want to buy one ticket to 20 different shows, you'll still get that 30% off. Ah. And there are some, some opportunities we have to make that discount better if you have a large group and you're always welcome to contact the box office and we'll try and work with you 
on some of these shows. We also have a student rush program that is kind of unheard of. It's just because it's so affordable. Like I said, we want to make sure that students see the concert series as part of their educational experience. So to help make that happen, we offer tickets to students for just $10 on the last day our box office is open before the show. So if it's a Saturday or Sunday show, that's the Friday before. Normally, it's the day of the show. And any tickets we haven't sold yet, we'll sell to anyone with a student ID for just $10, which is very affordable when you're thinking of yeah. especially seeing the same some of these same tours in Kansas City or St. Louis for upwards of $100. You can get it for 10 here. Wow. Well, I don't want to get into all of the events you have coming up next year, as people can look them up online at concertseries.missouri.edu. But there are three more concerts before the end of the year. The prerequisite Verdi's Requiem with the MU Choral Union, the a cappella group Voctive, and the other holiday season extravaganza, the Trans-Siberian Experience, which apparently has spurred no details when it comes to costumes, choreography, music, lasers and fog, which immediately makes me think of the Eurovision Song Contest, except with less sequins. Robert, with a show like that, how much do you just have to open the door and let them have at it versus provide all the technical crew and and the, you know, the fog machines? Well, <laughs> we actually do provide the technical crew. We have a, a fantastic technical crew. They work with every show, do an advance, really learn the show, learn what's needed. Typically, a big show can sometimes take three days in preparation and restoring they run the fog machines, they do the lights, they hang light plots, depending on what the show needs. It's really our tech people who pull off the miracle of every show. Mm, I wasn't sure how many they would bring with them, whether they traveled with a tech crew or that was really your cost and, and your responsibility. So it's, it's down to you. It's, it's up to each venue to provide all of that crewing. That is correct. Now, a lot of the larger shows do travel with some production because they know the show so well. So their production staff will work with our production staff to pull it all together and pull it off. But the vast majority of the work is done by local labor. And I have to ask, and you don't have to give any names here, Robert, but what are some of the strange items in the riders for this season? Oh, (laughs) 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 you know, it's a never ending process. I cannot recall anything this season I'll tell you the strangest thing I've ever seen in a rider, and that is that we are to drop fresh rose petals everywhere the artist will walk (laughs) while they're in the building. (laughs) Oh, my God. You'll have to tell me another time who that is. Because I'm guessing you're not going to say it on air. No, I'm not going to say it on air. And I will tell you, uh, just so that the uh, listening audience understands, sometimes artists put things like that in a writer just to make sure that you've read their writer Mm. and that you respond to their requests. That was something that was in the writer. It was in print. And I took a look at that and said, what? (laughs) Immediately took a red pen and said, no, we're not doing that. The artist actually expected me to do that, but it gave the artist reassurance that I had looked at everything else. Wow. So were the rose petals strewn or or did you get your way and they were not strewn? They were not strewn. (laughs) 
Final question for both of you. Which of the upcoming shows are you most looking forward to? Lainey, let's start with you. Well, it's like trying to pick your favorite child. I know. It's it's hard to do. I think for my specific role, like for outreach especially, Empire Wild is going to be a lot of fun. We do that in collaboration with the Missouri Symphony, and we go around to schools and do workshops and They also will do a workshop with the Symphony Conservatory and with the University of Missouri students. That's a three-day thing for us, even though the show is just on February 7th. So that one's going to be a lot of fun for me. Missoula Children's Theater also has a lot of outreach, and we've already talked about The Lightning Thief. And Robert, for you? I have to be honest. I look forward to every show, but what I really look forward to the most is about midnight, the day of the show, when everything has gone well, the artist has performed, the audience is happy, and we all get to go home. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought you were going to say like June the 5th, 2023, <laughs> the day after the last performance. <laughs> there, there you go. That works too. The 2022-23 University Concert Series is underway with the next show, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, a celebration of the legendary Queen of Soul coming up next Tuesday. You can find a listing of all the upcoming concerts online at concertseries.missouri.edu. And Robert Wells and Lainey Van Sant, thank you so much for making time to chat. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guest this evening, University of Missouri Theatre Director Dr. Joy Powell, the Executive Director of the Columbia Experimental Music Festival, Matt Crook, and from the University Concert Series Director Robert Wells and Outreach and Development Coordinator Lainey Van Sant. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!